Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. As fall and winter approach, the conflict in Ukraine is moving into a new and terrible stage. Russia has intensified attacks on Ukrainian cities and is targeting power stations. As it has from the beginning of the conflict, Ukraine continues to beg Israel to be able to purchase Israeli missile defense systems to counter the Russian attacks. Israel continues to refuse to do so. Here to talk about it with us is Yossi Melman, Haaretz's intelligence and strategic affairs analyst and the author of nine books on the subject. After my conversation with Yossi, I'll talk to Sam Sokol, who recently returned from a trip to Ukraine over the Jewish High Holy Days, and he can talk about what life is like on the ground there. All of that, coming up. Yossi Melman is a Haaretz senior analyst writing about defense, intelligence, and strategic affairs. He's also the author of nine books on a wide range of subjects of all aspects of the Middle East and its conflicts. So Yossi, you were name-checked over the weekend when Farid Zakaria on CNN interviewed former prime minister and current opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu. Zakaria used one of your articles to pin Bibi down on whether he had been one of the world leaders who had been emboldening Putin to uh, take the actions that he's been taking in Ukraine. Let's listen to his response. Let me ask you about another uh, relationship of yours during the period you were prime minister. Um, it's what Yossi Melman, the Israeli journalist, calls the, the strange love affair between Bibi and Putin. You met with Vladimir Putin, phone conversations. Um, you went to the opera, uh, the, the ballet with him. Um, a lot of people feel that international statesmen coddled Putin rather than uh, creating kind of a tough stand of deterrence that would have made him understand the costs of his kind of actions. In retrospect, what do you think of this friendship? First of all, I wouldn't call it a love affair, but I would call it uh, uh, a question of interest. Uh, national leaders have a responsibility for the security of their country. The Russian and Israeli air forces are literally flying next to each other over the skies of Syria. I was committed to preventing Iran from creating another uh, Lebanon front in Syria. So we took hundreds and hundreds of air sorties against their, uh, their attempts to implant themselves militarily in Syria. That got us into a potential uh, clash with uh, the Russian Air Force that is also flying over the skies of Syria. And starting a war between Russia and Israel, I didn't think was a good idea. So I made every effort to coordinate with uh, the the uh, with Putin and the Russian military, the uh, uh, the sorties, so we wouldn't bump into each other, and we achieved that goal, and that I think is a, a matter of national interest. So Yossi, do you buy what Netanyahu had to say? No, absolutely not, because Netanyahu was uh, sending uh, uh, contradictory messages in the last few days in one interview promoting his book. In the U.S., he said that he would consider the possibility of sending weapons, uh, supplying Ukraine with weapons. And then he said he wouldn't do it. So it's clear that he has no intentions, if he's elected, to send weapons to Ukraine. And uh, it's a a well-known fact that he has been very friendly with Putin. And they have... uh, established over the years uh, very uh, 
close, intimate relations. So you think it was a love affair, he's just denying it? Of course it was a love affair. I think that Netanyahu was more than any Western leader who called Putin, who met Putin so many times uh, in the last, I would say, six, seven years. He went to Moscow several times. Um, Putin came once or twice to Israel. So, yes, he, he, it was a love affair. It was an alliance. And I think in a way, uh, Putin uh, spotted Netanyahu's weaknesses and, uh, and took advantage of it. So let's uh, fast forward to our uh, present times. Ukraine, since the beginning of the conflict, has been desperately requesting that Israel sell it defensive weapons. It renewed its requests officially, um, unofficially, behind the scenes recently. And the U.S. is pressuring Israel to agree to it. Um, you wrote recently in Haaretz that Prime Minister Lapid is at odds with the defense and security establishment on the issue. Can you explain exactly what's happening behind the scenes? Yes, um, the Israeli security establishment, all the security chiefs, head of Mossad Barnea, chief of staff General Kohavi, um, chief of military intelligence Haliva, are against sending weapons to Ukraine, not even defensive uh, systems like uh, anti-aircraft batteries, even not iron, not necessarily Iron Dome. Israel does have other anti-aircraft systems. Israel, from day one, when the war broke out in February, uh, did not want to help Ukraine because Israeli leaders, first Bennett and later uh, Prime Minister Lapid, and above all, the, the, the security chiefs and the Minister of Defense, Gantz, don't want to take any risks. They fear Putin and I think they are wrong. We saw that Putin is not that strong as he pretended to be. So in your view, Lapid, who seems to personally support helping the Ukraine, you think he should override the generals in the security establishment? Of course, this is a strategic, a political, diplomatic uh, decision. And it's up to the leadership to design the policy, not to the, not to the generals. The generals can advise the, the government, but I think it's in the Israeli interest from the security point of view, from the moral point of view, from democratic values, uh, from a strategic uh, uh, perspective that Israel should help Ukraine. Certainly now when Iran is involved in the war, it's not only an Iranian minor involvement, it's a major one. The, the Iranian drones in the service of Putin are causing a great deal of damage uh, and may change the nature of the war in, in, uh, in Ukraine. How does the use of Iranian weapons in this conflict change the calculus for Israel? Well, it's very, it's very clear. Israel has always said that Iran is its number one enemy. Israel always is saying that they, they would fight Iran wherever they are, whether it's in uh, helping the Houthis in Yemen, whether their involvement in Iraq or in Syria above all, and in Lebanon. So what's the difference now with Ukraine? If Iran is involved in Ukraine, Israel should 
stand up against the Iranian aggression in Ukraine. Not to mention that uh, that Iran is is getting gaining a lot of experience from the battlefield, and eventually it would backfire. It's a boomerang. All these uh, battle-proven experience that the Iranians are acquiring would turn against Israel in the near future. Uh, they are improving their systems. They are learning from what is happening in the in the in the Ukrainian front, and they would uh, upgrade their drones and their missiles, and would send them all over the Middle East, including maybe in the future against Israel. So, what is behind the recent public warnings um, from? officials close to Putin himself that supplying arms to Ukraine would destroy relations between Moscow and Jerusalem. Why is all of a sudden Russia going public with this? Yes, exactly. Medvedev, former president and prime minister and a close ally of of Putin, said, warned uh, Israel because he senses that something is happening uh, uh, beneath the surface. He senses that, that the Israeli leadership is now reluctantly though, but is more ready to assist Ukraine because of the US pressure, because of, let me put it uh, mildly and, and modestly, of my writing and other uh, journalists who have tried to persuade the government and to change the Israeli public opinion in, in, to support Ukraine. So Medvedev and Putin know it and they're becoming very, very um, erratic. They are becoming very, very nervous and that's why they are threatening. And Israel should not cave in and surrender to threats. Israel should do what is best for the Israeli interest. And as I said, Israel from all perspective, including security, uh, should help Ukraine. Israel should be uh, with the Western ally, uh, with its most important strategic ally, the US, and they have to help Ukraine because even because Iran is there, not to mention the moral aspects, democratic values, and so on. But from the security point of view, it's the right thing to do to support Ukraine. And I hope that after the elections, if Lapid is elected uh, or stay in power, uh, Israel would help Ukraine. If Netanyahu is uh, elected, I'm not sure. It seems like the counterpressure to Lapid is our defense minister, Benny Gantz. Is it true that he hasn't even been returning the phone calls of his Ukrainian counterpart? Well, I, I don't think it was a, a wise uh, move by the uh, Ukraine defense minister Reznikov to, to cancel the call uh, with Gantz. But it's true that Gantz himself uh, behave cowardly because for months and months he refused to to talk to to Reznikov to the, the Ukrainian defense minister. Why? Because he wanted avoid any discomfort because Gantz is leading the campaign not to assist Ukraine, and it was from day one. Israel was forced uh, after a few weeks to provide Ukraine with. Uh, helmets and uh, bulletproof vests to humanitarian aid worker in Ukraine, not to the security forces. And Israel is still refusing to to assist with the defensive uh, equipment Ukraine. Israel is sitting on the fence 
and it's wrong. It's wrong from whatever angle you look at it. And I think it's shameful that Israel is not doing the right thing. Israel, was, which has been always preaching the world about uh, morality, about values, about, uh, you know, all these things that are soft power. And suddenly Israel is, is avoiding to, to do what they are telling the world to, uh, to do when it comes to Israeli uh, interests. So far, there haven't been any real repercussions on Israel from either Western Europe or the United States on this policy. Do you expect the pressure to increase? I mean, it looks like maybe uh, Putin is expecting the pressure to increase, which is why he's applying counter pressure. But do you think that, uh, for example, the Biden White House is going to apply much more overt pressure on Israel to uh, to get off the fence? Well, there is a pressure behind the scene, and the the ultimate evidence is that already there are some movements in the direction of Israel providing some sort of intelligence to the Iranians. It's it's insufficient, it's too slow, but this is because of the U.S. pressure. But the Biden administration is also now expecting, you know, it's uh, midterm elections. So the pressure would not mount on Israel. In eight days, Israelis go to the polls and there's a chance that Prime Minister Netanyahu could return to power. What would you expect in the policy towards uh, Ukraine and and weapons uh, if Netanyahu comes back? Is it uh, absolutely a done deal that uh, there is no way Israel will uh, go to Ukraine's aid if uh, Netanyahu returns? Absolutely. If Netanyahu is back in power, he he won't provide any weapons whatsoever, not even defensive, to Ukraine. Um, He will continue to preach the world about the Iranian danger, but when it comes to uh, value or uh, the Iranian uh, danger in Ukraine, he would side with uh, with Putin. Uh, I have no doubt about it. And maybe one last remark. I think there is nothing to fear Putin and the Russian presence in Syria. They have withdrew many of their troops and at least one uh, air defense battery because of the war in Ukraine. They need the, the, the Russian troops to be in, Ru- in the Russian-Ukrainian front. And even if they continue to be present in Syria, I don't think they cause a great deal of damage to the Israeli Air Force. The Israeli Air Force knows how to outsmart the Russian uh, batteries. And I think one of the reasons why Russia hasn't been using the batteries against the Israeli Air Force, because they don't want to be embarrassed, uh, realizing that Israel has the upper end. And also, Russia has its interest to stabilize Assad. And And Russia knows that if Israel is attacked by Russian or Syrian troops in uh, in Syria, uh, Israel would retaliate with fierce force and can destabilize the regime. Yossi, thanks so much for the interview. Thanks so much for your excellent writing on, uh, on Ukraine and Israel. And um, good luck with your continued coverage. Thank you very much, Alison. Coming up next, a conversation with Haaretz reporter Sam Sokol, who is just back from a journey across Ukraine. 
now I'm happy to welcome Haaretz reporter Sam Sokol, who has returned from an extended journey across Ukraine, well-timed, it seems, just before things uh, heated up again. Um, Sam, you're no stranger to Ukraine. You've been there many times before. You even wrote a book about the country. On this trip, what were the moments where you were most struck by the transformation of the country you know very well into wartime terrain? What really struck me this time around, as opposed to all of my previous trips since the beginning of the conflict in 2014, was how a war which had been primarily limited geographically to the east of the country has really consumed the entirety of Ukraine. Previously, if you had stayed out of the active combat zone, even if you were in a city near the war, you really didn't feel it. Life continued as normal on the streets. The Russians weren't bombarding cities where there wasn't active fighting. You could, if you chose to, almost ignore the fact that you were in a country at war. And this time around, many of the cities that I have visited time and again over the years have suddenly become the center of a conflict, even though they may be hundreds or even thousands of kilometers away from the front. And that was really, really something that affected me deeply, seeing Jewish communities, especially in these in these cities, which had previously welcomed refugees and put in a lot of effort on humanitarian uh, humanitarian initiatives, suddenly seeing that their own local communities were fleeing and emptying out. So you're primary mission on this trip at first was to see what the annual ultra-Orthodox Rosh Hashanah pilgrimage to Uman looks like uh, after many governments warned their citizens against traveling there. So despite all the warnings, were there a lot of ultra-Orthodox pilgrims who were determined to be there? And tell us about the Uman tradition to begin with, for those of us who aren't familiar, and, and what it was like this year. So the Uman tradition is really something that took off uh and popularity after the end of the Cold War. It was always something that was limited to members of the Breslov Hasidic sect. And essentially, uh, the founder of this sect said uh, a couple of centuries ago that anyone who visited his grave on Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish New Year would be assured a uh, favorable divine judgment for the year to come. And over the past uh, three decades, this has really blown up in popularity and become almost an annual circus. The uh, center of Uman, it's a small city, a uh, few hours drive south of Kiev, has become a replica of B'nai Brak or Meisharim. There's Hebrew signage everywhere, black-clad, ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, thronging the streets. And this year, the Israelis, the Americans, and the Ukrainians warned that people should not go. The Ukrainians said they were worried about the possibility of Russian provocation and that if a rocket would fall on Ukraine, it could cause a mass casualty event. Despite this, around 23,000 people showed up this year. And while people uh, who I spoke to in Uman who are regular uh, pilgrims who've been going for years said that this was much less crowded than usual, it really didn't feel all that empty. The streets were packed, the synagogues were packed, and it was a very, very surreal experience. This was my 14th trip to Ukraine, but my 
first to Uman, and I have never in my life seen anything like this. It was overwhelmingly male. I could count the number of women I saw, uh, Jewish women I saw on one hand, and it was overwhelmingly ultra-Orthodox, and people who went, this was the hardcore of the hardcore of people who go. They were the most religious, the most dedicated, and they really seemed to dismiss any sense of danger, essentially saying Rabbi Nachman promised us that we'll be safe, so we're going to be safe. And because there is no commercial air travel to Ukraine now, these people who went, went through this extended journey that boggles the mind. Uh, they would fly into neighboring countries to Poland. Uh, for instance, I landed in Krakow, and they would, they would drive in. My journey from the airport to Uman, which included changing cars at the border and crossing the border on foot, took me 13 hours. One pilgrim told me that he came with his young children after a 27-hour drive. So it was, you know, these were the hardcore of the hardcore. The, the one thing that was very interesting in Uman that I found strange in a way is that the Hasidic pilgrims welcomed the changes that the war brought. There was a national curfew at 11 p.m. The local authorities in Uman had banned sales of alcohol and fireworks. And many of the people who would go for, more for a party than for Rosh Hashanah itself had essentially said, oh, screw it, we're staying home. So one one Hasid came up to me and he said, this is great. We go to sleep early. There's no alcohol. Nobody's causing trouble with the locals. In, in a way, uh, people who went told me that the war actually enhanced the the holiday and certainly they didn't pay much attention to the air raid sirens or to anything else that was going on. It was as if it wasn't happening. They would look up hear the si when they heard the siren and then just go back to what they were doing. Wow. Wow. You wrote that, uh, yeah, you wrote that you were praying and there was air raid sirens going on. And I guess, you know, people had the faith so that they didn't, uh, they didn't stop what they were doing. I mean, on a, on a totally pragmatic level as well, uh, Uman was hit on the first day of the war and a woman there was killed. But since then, I'm not really aware of any uh, attacks which specifically hit Uman. And in fact, one local Ukrainian woman I spoke with said that the pilgrims shared the same attitude as the locals, which was Uman is just not going to get hit. Uh, while people in other cities would worry about the sirens when the area alerts would go off, people in Uman just didn't care, Jewish or non-Jewish. So uh, you traveled to two of the major cities that are kind of, you know, loom in the Jewish imagination and are great cities of the world, both uh, Odessa and uh, Kiev. Can you um, tell us about how Jewish life is continuing or has been interrupted um, uh, by the war? There was a lot of reports initially in the first few months, but we haven't really seen a picture of who's left and what's happening now. So as I said earlier, uh, the cities that had previously hosted many Jewish refugees from the east of the country are themselves emptying out. And that can really be seen, uh, especially in the cases of Odessa and Kiev. Odessa, before the war, had two main Orthodox communities, one belonging to the Chabad Hasidic group and one which was uh, 
non-Hasidical to Orthodox. And in the early days of the war, the rabbi of the non-Hasidic community there essentially evacuated his entire community, his entire congregation. And the Chabad Hasidic community decided to stay, as well as the people who ran the local JCC, uh, which is affiliated with the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. And when I arrived in Odessa, the synagogue was working. They were distributing food packages to hundreds of people. I was there for a distribution. The schools were working at a fraction of the previous capacity, but they were still working. The Jewish Community Center had just reopened in-person operations and was ramping up. And I was actually there when they were holding a dance class for retirees. It was actually uh, quite touching. It was There was a group of elderly people in their 70s and 80s dancing. There was one elderly man, and they put on a, uh, a dance for us. And I remember that I turned and whispered to uh, the woman from the Jewish Community Center, this guy must be really popular. And she looks at him and she goes, he really is. <laughs> uh, but the what I saw in Odessa was really an effort to keep Jewish life going in the face of the war. The local Hillel had moved its operations literally underground, meaning they, uh, they moved to a new location that was partially underground so it could serve as a shelter in case of shelling. Earlier in the war, the their counterpart, the Hillel in Kharkiv, was bombed out of existence. And they really were putting in an effort to keep Jewish life going. Kiev, on the other hand, didn't really give off the same feeling. Uh, I spent the weekend at a Jewish community uh, compound in Podil, which is the Ukrainian version of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. It's the home to Hasidim and hipsters. And there's a Jewish community compound there. It's a synagogue, a kosher hotel, a restaurant, and a yeshiva, all in a gated community. And I checked in at the hotel, and the manager behind the desk looked at me and said, you're the only person here. I went into the yeshiva, which is usually packed with people, one man sitting in the corner and studying Talmud. And over Shabbat in the synagogue, there were only 20 people in this cavernous uh, synagogue. It was as if everybody had just fled. And while people, uh, men between 18 and 60, aren't allowed out of the country, uh, and you have people, men who remained while sending their families out in the early days before the restrictions were put on, many, many people, uh, Jews and non-Jews, fled uh, you know, maybe around a quarter of the country's population left, and that includes the Jewish communities. So there's one synagogue in Kiev, uh, which had been run by the former rabbi of Donetsk, a city in eastern Ukraine which was taken over in 2014. And he had helped reestablish a community for refugees in Kiev after he was displaced, and he led his entire community several months back on an exodus uh, eventually to Israel, so that community was shut down. The local reform rabbi left, and his community was doing services over Zoom, but there were very few people who were actually left. Uh, same, similar situation with the conservative congregation. And it really, it really felt like everybody who could get out had gotten out. So it, really, it, was, it was really uh, disquieting, actually. No, it sounds really disturbing. 
Circling back to our conversation with Yossi Melman about the defensive weapons sales, when you told Ukrainians, Jewish and non-Jewish, that you were from Israel, did any of them mention to you Israel's reluctance to openly side with Ukraine to sell them weapons, etc.? You know, what was their attitude towards what's going on in the in that department? It came up. I went uh, I went drinking with a friend in Kiev one evening, someone I hadn't seen in several years. He had sent his family abroad and he was stuck in Ukraine because he was of draft age. And he was complaining, has been complaining to me bitterly for months about Israel's lack of response. Uh, my uh, my fixer, who I was traveling across Ukraine with, was uh, likewise complaining. I've heard this uh, from many people uh, over the course of, of the war. I, I think there's a feeling among Ukrainians that they're going through a similar situation to what Israel has in the past, and they don't understand why Israel is not willing uh, to to help in any way. I think that there's uh, both a certain amount of bitterness and a certain amount of hope that Israel will come around on this and uh, offer something. Sam, I'm glad you arrived back safely uh, from your trip, and uh, thanks for uh, for going and reporting back, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. As Israel's elections draw even closer, don't miss this week's all-important episode of Election Overdose with Anshel Pfeffer and Dr. Dalia Shenlin, who will explain it all as Israelis get ready to head for the polls on November 1st. I'd like to thank my guests, Yossi Melman and Sam Sokol, and my producer, Avri Rosenzweig. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.